Hey guys, this is Pastor Neil. I just want to say thank you so much for joining us today on this podcast. Hey, would you do us a huge favor today? Would you subscribe, like, or leave us a review wherever you get this content? It really helps us reach other people with the gospel. Also, we would love, love to see you at our campus uh, on a Sunday morning. We meet at 1010 South Bowie Drive in Weatherford, Texas. You can check out our service times and more information about the church on our on our website, waterhousechurch.com. Check us out on Facebook or any other social media sites that you may have. We would love to see you. I pray that today you are renewed, restored, refreshed, and that your spirit comes alive. Now here is today's message. Scripture for this morning for y'all. So let's get... 2, 8 through 11, and it says, And to the angel of the church, in Smyrna wrote, The words of the first and of the last who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this church. We thank you for all these people that are here. Lord, we thank you that we get to that we get to be here and to and to worship you and to read your word without having to worry about, you know, the other things that the world has to with their their tribulations and where they they've come under condemnation for for reading the word of God and trying to spread the gospel. Lord, we pray that you would just clear the busyness from our minds, open our hearts, open our minds to hear what you have to say to us with that ear that you tell us that we need to listen for, Lord. And with all these things, we thank you so much for everything. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Casey. Love Casey and his family. You know, I am so, um, so glad that we have a board of elders that, that love the people, that love the church, and that love the mission of the church. So thankful for them. So this letter, we are in uh, Revelation for a little while. So right now we're in the seven letters of the church. Last week, uh, we, we talked about Ephesus. This week, we're moving into Smyrna. Now, Smyrna was one of the letters that really God didn't have anything bad to say about these people. He, he actually encouraged them, even though it didn't feel encouraging as you read that. It's like, you're about to come under immense persecution. You're about to be crushed. Like, it's going to get really bad. Smyrna, but don't let what's going on keep you from being faithful to me because there's a better day coming. There's something that we can look forward to. And so this letter to Smyrna seems like a warning, but really it's a word of encouragement. And as I was preparing for this message, I was, I was kind of glanced over the, the letter in Smyrna. I'm like, Lord, does this even apply to us in the West, in the American church? Because I can't relate to what these people are going through in the way that they're going through it. Now, here in the States, we have various forms of, of persecution and pressure. But compared to Smyrna at the time, it's really, it's, 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 pretty, it's pretty minute. And, and so to the letter in Smyrna, Jesus is writing to this church, reminding them like hard times are coming. It's going to get worse. 
Be encouraged. It's going to get worse because even though it gets worse, I'm with you and I have a plan and there's something forward looking. There's something to look forward to. And I have a plan through it all. There's a book that I read uh, called Good to Great. I don't know if you've read that book or not. Uh, James C. Collins is the author of that book. He talks about leadership strategies. And in that book, he, he had an interview with a man named James Stockdale. Now, some of you older people know who James Stockdale is. He actually ran for president a while back. But James Stockdale was, um, he was captured in the Vietnam War, and he was held captive for seven years in a POW camp. And during those seven years, he undergrew immense uh, pressure. He was tortured. He was questioned. He was malnourished. They didn't feed him. Uh, they, they treated him very poorly in the prison system. And while James Collins was interviewing him, he asked this question to James Collins. He said this, during your seven years in the POW camp, which prisoners didn't make it out of Vietnam? How could you tell if they're going to make it out or if they weren't going to make it out? And James Stockdale said this, Oh, that's easy. I knew the ones that weren't going to make it out. These were the optimists. Oh, they're the ones that said, we're going to be out of here by Christmas. And then Christmas would come, and then Christmas would go. Then he would say, we're going to be out of here by Easter. And then Easter would come, and Easter would go. And then Thanksgiving, and then it would be Christmas again. And then eventually, these optimist people died of a broken heart. And so this, this paradox, what we call the Stockdale paradox, came into form. He makes this statement. This is the paradox. You must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality. Let me repeat that. You must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end with the discipline to confront the brutal facts of your current reality. He's saying we need to, as people, understand the brutal facts that we're going through pain. We're going through this problem. We're going through this pressure. He had to understand, like, I'm in prison. I'm a POW. I may never get out of here, but I know that I'm going to prevail in the end. Whether living or dying, we're going to prevail in the end. And really, if you look at this letter to Smyrna, it's, it's the exact same. He's saying, you need to have this paradox in mind. You need to understand you're going to go through brutal things. You're going to go through hardships. But don't forget that there is something at the end. You will prevail at the end. And I want to open up a little bit about this town of Smyrna. Now, Smyrna uh, is, is located in Turkey, and it's, it's still there today. It's not called Smyrna anymore. But this, in Smyrna, they would have this export of myrrh. And so they think possibly this is where it got its name, Smyrna. Uh, and so myrrh is a, uh, it's a, it's a fragrance, right? But it's also an antiseptic. We still use it today for many things. If you know your Bible, when Jesus was born, what did they bring Jesus? They brought him gold, frankincense, and myrrh, right? And myrrh was thought to be one of, the, uh, one of the oils that when Jesus was about to go to the cross, that, that his feet were washed with, that he was anointed with. And so myrrh is also, back in that day, it would be used as an embalming uh, agent. It would be because it does have antiseptic qualities to it. And, and so it was used throughout the empire as, as something to, s- to symbolize being burial or death. But Smyrna really lives up to its name here because I, I had to look it up. I'm like, how do you make myrrh? Like, how, how do you get myrrh? Where does it come from? And so I didn't want, I didn't want to go to a religious site. I went to a, a botanist site 
and it talked about how you make myrrh. And so myrrh comes from a really pointy tree, and this is how they make it. I, I just found it interesting because it really is, and again, this is not a religious site I got this from. It says, how you make myrrh. When a wound on a tree penetrates the bark and into the sapwood, the tree secretes a resin and a tear, and it's called myrrh gum. Just like frankincense, which is a resin, myrrh is harvested by this, repeatedly wounding the trees to bleed the gum, which is waxy and coagulates quickly. After the harvest, the gum becomes hard and glossy, and then they could use it. They usually make it by crushing the, the resin into a powder and then putting it in oil or putting it in other things. And this church was being crushed by the weight of persecution. And, and I find it interesting that just like myrrh is made by wounding the tree and by crushing the, the resin, Jesus himself was wounded for us and was crushed for us. That healing comes from the wounding and healing comes from the crushing. The fragrance of this myrrh would come out as it was crushed. And for believers, when we're crushed and when we're persecuted, what comes out of us? This beautiful fragrance of, of Jesus Christ. I find it interesting that Isaiah 53 talks about this. It says, he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. And Jesus is riding this church in Smyrna. He's reminding them of all the things that he's gone through, and he's reminding them of who he truly is. He's saying to them, I went through the wounding. I went through the crushing. And look what it produced. It produced life for you. And so, church, as you go through these things, know that as you're being crushed, as you're being pierced, you're producing life in other people, and you're producing life even in yourself. And Jesus writes to this church, and he opens up this letter to the church with these words. This is the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. He's reminding the church in Smyrna of who is writing this letter. Back in Smyrna, they were known for their Caesar worship. And as, as it was in many times, many cities in that day. So Caesar would have a shrine and uh, upon that shrine, they've even found this in some ancient, uh, in, in, even in some digs that they've done, they've, they've found above the shrine this letter that says, Caesar, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And they would go once a year and they would burn incense on this altar to Caesar and they would have to recite this. Caesar is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus is almost, it's like he's writing to me. Remember, remember who I am. I'm the first and the last. I was here before Caesar. I'll be here after Caesar. I'm the one that created you. I'm the true king of kings, and I am the true Lord of lords. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. I was dead, but I will come. I have come back to life. I am eternal. Caesars will come and Caesars will go, but I will remain steadfast on my throne. You don't have to worry. Like I am the one that you need to put your faith in. Don't put your faith in powers. Don't put your faith in anything else. Put your faith in me. I think it's so good that he opens up the letter with these words. Trust in who I am. Don't give in to the culture around you. Know that I am the true Lord of Lords and the true King of Kings. Amen. In fact, I want to give you a little history lesson. How many of you know who Polycarp is? It's not a Pokemon if you're thinking that. 
Right? Sounds like a Pokemon. Polycarp was, the first, was probably the second bishop or third bishop, they think, in Smyrna. He was a disciple of John who wrote Revelation. He's actually wrote some, uh, some letters to some other churches that we still have today. Um, we still have the, the historical documents of those in those letters. And, and Polycarp was a man who loved the Lord, and he served the Lord faithfully in Smyrna for many, many years. And he eventually was martyred because of his uh, refusal to offer incense to Caesar. And, and, and so the pro-council rounds him up for not giving uh, praise to Caesar. And they tell him, Polycarp, Polycarp, if you just renounce Jesus and you just burn incense on the altar, we'll let you go. And Polycarp, the leader of the church, says these words, 86 years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Bring it on. This is what he's saying. And so they rounded him up. And the historical documents say that he was burned at the stake. And as, he was, and as they were stoking the fires, it says that the flames circled him but would not burn him. And the pro-council had enough of this, and they ordered a soldier to, to spear him with a spear. Um, accounts say that as he was speared, that blood gushed out and put out the flames. Polycarp was a man who knew who his Lord was. He was a man who understood that there was a better story ahead of him, that, that no matter what happens, he's like, crush me, kill me, doesn't matter. I know there's something better in the future. I, I serve a higher power than Caesar. I serve a higher power than anything that's going on around me. And so this letter would actually probably, more than likely, we don't know, but Polycarp probably led, read this first letter to the church when it was given because he was alive during that time. It says he was killed in AD 156. So these people were no strangers to persecution. And, and Jesus to this church says this, I know your tribulation. How comforting is it to know that Jesus knows? There's probably moments in your life where you're like, Lord, do you even know what I'm going through? Do you even know the pain, the pain that I'm going through? Do you even know the crushing, that, the weight that is on me right now? I don't know about you. Maybe I'm the only unspiritual one here that said that. God, do you even care? Do you even know? But he writes to this church under, who's being crushed under persecution, and he says, I know your tribulation. He doesn't say, I see your tribulation. He says, I know it. I know what you've been through. I've gone through it. Jesus, on his, as he walked on this earth and he had his ministry, he knew what it meant to be rejected, to be hated, to be run out of town, to have stones thrown at him, to, to, for people to come and press in on him. He knew what it meant to be hated. Jesus says, I know your tribulation. I've been a partner with you in it. I know what you're going through. And today, maybe you're feeling like this. Maybe you feel like you don't think that God knows what you're going through. You feel like your pain is too immense. And Jesus doesn't understand. He understands. He's been through it all. He's been through it all. He's walked through fire and he's come out refined. He can handle your problems. You just have to trust him. And so what is tribulation? The Greek word here is thalipsis. I'm going to teach you some Greek. Thalipsis. It means affliction, anguish, burden, persecution, tribulation, trouble, or pressure. I think pressure is probably the best word that we can use for the tribulation here. 
They're feeling pressure. They're feeling pressure from the society. They're feeling pressure from the religious, uh, the religious community there that is outside of Christianity. They're feeling pressure from even the government at that time. And they're probably, probably even feeling pressure from within. They're being pressed on every side and it's crushing them. And this, and this church is trying to be crushed by the enemy. The word tribulation uh, is... Is the etymology of that is like someone being crushed by a boulder. Back in ancient times, if they wanted to kill somebody, they would do it through tribulation. What they would do is take a boulder and they would stick it on top of that person until it eventually took their life. And sometimes that's how our life feels, isn't it? I've got this huge boulder on my chest and it's trying to kill me and it's taking the life out of me one breath at a time. And Jesus is telling these people here, I am the counterpressure to the persecution. I am a counterpressure to the tribulation. I walk through it, and you can walk through it as well. I've been through it. I know what you're going through. I know what it means to be pressed. What is not tribulation? It's 24 hours without AT&T cell service. <laughs> right? That's not tribulation. That's inconvenience. Right? And I think, I think here in the Western church, we, we kind of label things as persecution when really it's just an inconvenience. And in, in light of what other people go through around the world for the faith, we, we have it pretty good. We should wake up every morning and say, thank you, Lord, that my faith is so easy. Because there's people around the world that are being killed for their faith. We don't think about it. We don't see it. The news doesn't report it very often. But people every day are killed for the faith. I looked up a site called Open Doors World Watch, and they did a survey in 2023, and they, they labeled the top 10 places in the world that it's hard to be a Christian, top 10 countries. And so I have the top three here. Number one is North Korea. Imagine that. North Korea, they believe there's about 400,000 believers in North Korea that, that call upon the name of the Lord. All of them meet in underground houses, underground churches. They meet in houses and, and they hide. They have to hide because if they're caught, they can be executed or many are not executed, but everything is taken from them and they're forced to go work in labor camps. In Somalia, which is number two, there's almost no Christian influence at all. There's maybe a handful, they say maybe a few hundred people in Somalia who, who know Jesus Christ. So there's a very dim light there, but there's still light there. There is an Islamic militant group called Al-Shabaab. And, and that group, if they catch you, you either convert to Islam or you die in that moment. And, and here's the, the most horrendous thing, is if, you, if you're a young girl in that, in that culture and you're a Christian, they'll make you marry someone in hopes that you would convert to Islam. So it's, it's, it's almost impossible, almost impossible. It's very dangerous to be a Christian in Somalia. And then in Pakistan, we see this. It's not, it's on the news. You have to look really hard, but it's, it's there. Pakistan has this law. It's called the blaspheme laws. It was passed by parliament, and it says this. The law says that any derogatory remarks, etc., in respect of the holy prophet Muhammad, either spoken or written, or by visible representation, or by imputation. Notice the wording here. Innuendo or insinuation, directly or indirectly, 
shall be punished by death. So this is going to interpretation. So the people in Pakistan, the believers of Pakistan, they have to watch what they say. They have to watch what they wear. They have to watch everything they do because somebody can misconstrue it as being spoken against the prophet Muhammad and they can bring a charge against them. And, and here is the punishment for such a crime. Death or imprisonment for life or a huge fine. A few months ago, I have a pastor friend. He's a Facebook friend. I don't know him personally. But he's a pastor in Pakistan, and, and he was showing all the stuff that was going on in Pakistan. There was a belief that some church, some Christian, had blasphemed the prophet. And so they go on this tear. The people go on a tear, not the government. The people go on a tear, and they start burning churches. They start breaking down churches. He showed this video. It was a church that, that he actually was a co-pastor in. And they climb to the top. They tear down the cross. Everybody's chanting. Everybody's screaming and they're happy about this and they catch the church on fire and burn it down. This happens on a daily basis, but we don't see it. We're so shielded here. Open Doors says that last year alone, and these are people that, these are written, documented cases that we know of. These are, these are, I mean, there may be more that we don't know of. And this is specifically for those of the faith. It's not people groups that are known to be Christians. This is actually people professing to be Christians and being persecuted for the name of Jesus. So last year, 5,621 Christians were murdered. 2,110 churches were attacked. And 4,542 Christians were detained because of reasons related to their faith. We're so shielded here in the States. We take our faith for granted. We take our religious liberties for granted, but pay attention, church, because it's coming. I don't mean to be doom or gloom, but it's on our doorstep. More and more times, more and more out of society, more and more things are trying to silence the church of what we believe and what we say. In fact, in Canada, there was a law passed a few years ago called C4. Go look it up. It, 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 talks, about, uh, it, it, it talks about gender conversion. Not the way we think about it, but it's illegal to suggest to somebody who has changed their gender to go back to their original gender. And in the church, that, that flies in the face of Genesis 1 and 2 that says that God created man and woman. And so in that society, and even in Canada, churches can get in trouble for preaching that God created man and created woman, and that's the way it should be. It's, it's in Canada, it's in Europe, and it's... it's it's on our doorstep. It's been tried to be passed here a few times. We need to pay attention to what's going on, not in fear, but to realize that hardships are going to come as a believer, that, that people are going to hate you because of the name of Jesus. Jesus said this, they hated me, so they're going to hate you. And, and so we need to stand on the truth but we need to stand firm knowing that there is a better day ahead of us. Like, this is worth it. This is worth the crushing. This is worth the pressure. And so I'm going to encourage you today by letting you know how persecution happens. I know this is such an encouraging word, isn't it? But it is because we may be crushed. We may be persecuted. But the Lord has the last say. So here's how persecution happens. Three stages of persecution. Uh, first stage is socially. Socially. So this is where people start talking. 
about a certain group of people. This is, this is any kind of persecution toward any group, right? But in the, in the Christian context, it is stereotyping. You know those Christians? They do this. They believe that. They hate this. They hate that. All these things, all these slander things, right? This is socially a distrust in the community. And socially, they build in this distrust. And eventually, people start believing these things. In the ancient culture, in, in Smyrna, it was thought to be that, that Christians were atheists. They called them atheists. They called Polycarp an atheist because they didn't believe in the Roman gods and they, didn't, then they would not bow to Caesar. And so they called them atheists. They called them the lawless people. They don't understand that these gods control everything. But really, they serve the one true God. And in that culture, they thought that these Christians, and this is written documents, that Christians were cannibals because we drank the blood and ate the flesh. They didn't understand communion. That as we, you know, every first, we're going to do it next week as we take the cup and take the bread. You hear about those Christians? They're cannibals, man. They eat people. Weird. Weird. And so these are how these things start. It's, social, it's a general distrust. I mean, we see it even today. I mean, even, even in American history, when the Irish came over, it's right, don't, 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 don't hire the Irish. Don't like the Irish. Right? When the Asians came over, don't, don't allow the, the Asians in. So there's this general mistrust. And then it goes on and it pours into their pocketbooks. It pours into them economically. So that's the second stage is economically. Meaning, I can't let you work for me. I can't buy from you. And I'm not going to let you buy from me. There is this economical persecution that happens, there's pressure that happens in communities because of their beliefs, because of who they are. And, and this is the, the second level of persecution. So economically, so when, when, when Jesus says, I know your poverty, they were poor. They were poor. They had nothing because they couldn't buy. They couldn't sell. The, the, nobody liked them. They were distrusted in their community. And so possibly these people had lost their jobs and lost their livelihood. And economically, we see this across the world today. And so we need to be aware of that. Third and final stage is politically. Politically. This is when laws happen to prohibit religious freedoms and beliefs. And when it, when it comes to government entities making laws um, to prohibit religious liberty and beliefs, this is really the, where the rubber meets the road. This is when it's okay to kill people for their faith. It's okay to run them out of town. And it's not only socially acceptable, but it's also governmentally acceptable. In Pakistan, where this pastor was, it wasn't the government. They were sitting around watching it happen, but they didn't do anything about it because, I mean, it's a law. And so this is, this is why, and this is my only political speech for a little bit, this is why the political process is so important in the States, because policy matters. And so we need to be aware of who we put in office. We need to be aware of the things that, that our, our, our American government, which I love. I'm so glad to be in America where it's so easy to be a believer. But we need to be aware of when things are passed or try to be passed to hinder our religious freedom. We are a country of representation. And so if we're not putting people in place to represent us, then guess what? We lose our freedoms and we lose our beliefs. 
Okay, that's all the polit- that's all the politics I have for you today. But it's important. Don't like you need to vote, okay? So, so this is the three steps of persecution. And, and right now, Smyrna was under all three of these. And, and Jesus is telling them, look, I know your persecution. I know what it means to be hated by the government. I know what it means to be hated by those who are in authority. I know what it means to live in poverty. I know what it means for, for people to hate me and have a distrust for me. I've walked through this and I'm walking through this with you. And then he goes on to say, I know your tribulation, but I also know your poverty. Jesus knows our poverty. He doesn't see our poverty. He knows where we have lack. These people in Smyrna probably didn't have anything. They couldn't get government assistance. They couldn't go to Rome for food or anything like that. They were hated. The people in America that are poor and under poverty, at least they can get some kind of government help most of the time. These people couldn't do anything. So they were really, really poor. They were in poverty. They had nothing. But he tells them, I see your poverty and your lack, but you are rich. What is he telling these people? He's referring back to maybe his Sermon on the Mountain where he said this, blessed are the poor in spirit for they will inherit the kingdom of heaven. He's telling them, you may not have anything on this earth, but you have something phenomenal in eternity. You have an inheritance that the richest person on this planet would kill for because you have something better waiting for you. They were poor by the world standards, but they were rich in faith. They were rich in love, and they were rich in the spirit. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says this about Jesus and for us. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that even though, that though he was rich, Jesus Christ, right? Equal with the Father, everything under his lordship, he's rich, okay? But... For our sakes, he became poor. He came to earth in the form of a man. He lost everything, right? And that he came as a man. He became poor so that by his poverty, we might become rich. Because Jesus was poor, we became rich. He paid the way for us to be with him in eternity. He gave us an inheritance that we are rich. Jesus gave up everything to become poor so we could inherit heaven. So saying, I know your poverty. I know where you lack. Maybe today you lack. The Lord knows. He sees and he cares and he's walking with you through it. He is our resource. He is what we truly need. And then he goes on to say, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. What is the synagogue of Satan? What, what is this imagery that he's talking about? Are, are there like Satan worshipers in, in Smyrna? Like, are they dancing around to Satan in this synagogue? No, he's saying there, there's people there that are against what God's doing. And, and as I looked this up and did my research, there's several views of what the synagogue of Satan is. And so they take it as the first words that say, they say they're Jews and they're not. So they think possibly there were people claiming to be of Jewish descent, but they weren't of Jewish descent. I mean, this is a possibility. You see it today. There's still sects in our culture today that think that they are Jews and they're truly not. Have you ever heard of British Israelism? This is a thought that, that the, the royal family in, in Britain is a descendant of one of the lost tribes of Israel, like the 10 lost tribes. And so as they were scattered by Assyria, like the 10 lost tribes migrated to Europe 
and in Britain, and they established their kingdom there. And so these people are part of the promised ones. This is ridiculous. Okay. The other thing is, is that people think that um, maybe they came to Native America. There's, there's sects of, sex of Christianity that think that Native Americans are the lost tribes, which again is, there's no fact to that. There, there, there's things out there, guys. You just got to look. You got to dig hard. I mean, it's, I mean, Google's great. You find all kinds of crazy stuff. And, and so all around, there's people claiming to be something that they're not. I mean, maybe you know people like that, right? Like all their life, they're saying, I'm Irish, I'm Irish, and they did the DNA test, and they're not even close, <laughs> right? And so maybe there are people claiming to be Jews, but they're not, and they're causing problems in the church. But in reality, and here's, here's my view of it, I, and, I, and, and this is how I get to that view, I believe it's unbelieving Jews who are hostile to the cause of Christ. They were actually fighting against what God is doing. This, these words of Jesus saying the synagogue of Satan really reflect Jesus' words towards the Pharisees, but also Jesus' words towards Peter. Remember, he calls Peter Satan. Jesus is about to go to the cross. He's talking to his disciples and he tells the disciples, I'm about to go to the cross. I'm about to die for you. And Peter says, never, never will that happen, Lord. I'll never let that happen. And Jesus rebukes him and says, get behind me, Satan, for you do not have in your mind the things of God. And, and so what he's saying is you're fighting against what God's doing, just like Satan fights against everything that God is doing. So he calls them the synagogue of Satan. And John 8, Jesus himself has this conversation with the Pharisaical leaders at the time, and he calls them children of the devil. Such a loving man, Jesus was. But he tells you straight. He tells them, he tells them straight. So he's having this argument with religious leaders, and, and, and Jesus is claiming to be the Son of God, and they're, they're asking him about this, and then Jesus answers them in chapter 8, verse 39. Abraham, this is the people, this is the religious leaders. They say, Abraham's our father, Jesus said to them. If you were really Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. And this is not what Abraham did. You did the works. You are doing the works of your, of your father did. All right, what do you mean? Who's my, who's my father? And they said to him, we're not born of sexual morality. We have one father, even God. We're children of Abraham. And Jesus says, no, you're not. If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I, and I am here. I came not on my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I'm doing? You're fighting against what God's trying to do here. This is what he's saying. It's because you cannot bear to hear my words. You are of your father, the devil. And you will do, and, and your will is to do your father's desires because he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus is telling these religious leaders, you're doing what the devil wants. You're following Satan. You're being influenced by him. And so when Jesus is telling these people in Smyrna, these people are coming against you. I know this synagogue of Satan. I know that these people are coming against you, but it's not the people. It's the power behind the people. It's Satan that's influencing these people that's working against God. So our enemy church is not people. It's not, it's not the people that come against us. It's the power behind the power. 
We need to realize that, that when people come up against us and when laws are passed and things happen, it's, it's, it's not the people that are coming against us. We don't fight against flesh and blood, but it's Satan working through people to accomplish these things. It's the powers and principalities of the, of the dark realm. This is, this is what comes against the church, and this is what's coming against this church in Smyrna. He's saying, you're going through this. I know that you're bearing up against these people that they are getting pressed on every side, and they're slandering you. They're lying about you, just like Satan. They're lying about who you are, and, and they're trying to work against you. In Smyrna, when Polycarp was burned, legend says that it was these Jews that brought the wood to burn him. And so we need to realize that it may come at all angles, but our fight is not against flesh and blood. It's against the enemy. And then he goes on to say, do not fear about what you're to suffer, what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in more, more encouraging words from Jesus, right? Don't fear about what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw you and uh, some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Jesus is telling them exactly what's going to happen. He's like, don't be afraid. I see what's going to happen to you. You're going to face imprisonment. You're going to be thrown in prison. Now, does the devil himself pop up and throw them in jail? No, he's saying that people are going to be influenced by the enemy to throw you into prison and to put you away, to lock you up, to test you to give you tribulation. And he goes, you're going to be in there for 10 days. So what is this 10 days? Some people think it is a literal 10 days of intense persecution in the church in Smyrna. But also they think that it's, um, other, other scholars believe that it's a period of 10 different times of persecution from the Roman emperors. And if you go back and do your history, this matches. There was 10 intense persecutions from the letter of this letter on. So that could be it. But here's the stance that I kind of take, that it's, a, that it's a symbolic number. We see in Scripture, especially through, through, through uh, Revelations, you're going to see a lot of symbolism. And, and, the, and Hebrew numerology, which is very important to those people, the number 10 means completeness, like complete. There's 10 commandments. It's the complete commandment of God, right? It's completeness. And, and so it, the, Jesus is telling them, you're going to have to face this in its completeness. Completeness. You're not going to get out early. You're not going to get out on good behavior. Like you have to walk through this persecution. You have to walk through this trial. You have to walk through it. But don't fear, because it is numbered. Thank God. I mean, wouldn't it be great if God just told us how long we'd be have to go through stuff? Yes. I mean, that'd be awesome. Lord, how long is this going to be? How long is the sickness going to last? How long is this going to be? And He's like, oh, it's going to be this long. But, but, but actually, he has told us how long it's going to be. It's, it's, and in light of eternity, it's nothing. It's a blink of an eye. And he's, he's reminding the church here in Smyrna, what you're going through, the days are numbered. Like it's not always going to be this way. There is something better on the other side. So don't give in. Don't give up. And I find this many times in my life that I have to walk through the pressure of the moment. That I have to endure some crushing that I have to endure a little pain in my life. But here's the one thing that I have learned about pressure and pain that comes through my life is that it always builds something in me. Just like myrrh is crushed to get the fragrance and to get to what it's good for, sometimes, most of the time, 
in the Christian life, we have to be crushed a little so that we can have something come out of us that produces something good in our life. It's a testing that's coming. James, the brother of Jesus, writes this. He goes in James 1, 22 through 4, count it all joy. It's a very familiar passage. And when you're going through this stuff, it's not joy to me, but count it joy because it's doing something in you. He goes, count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces something in you. Steadfastness. It anchors you down into your faith a little bit more. When you have to go through things, I don't know about you, but when I've had some really hard times in my life, it's done nothing but make my roots grow down deeper into faith. It's developed a steadfastness. Like I know that the Lord has me. And when I go through the next test, I have faith in that moment to believe that Jesus is going to get me through that one too. And so he's saying it's producing steadfastness in you. And then he goes, let that steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Testing and pressure does nothing but refine the believer. It's like, come on, bring it on, man. All you're going to do is make me stronger. All you're going to do is make me better, right? All you're going to do is, is, is bring something out of me, press on me. It doesn't matter. Try to crush me. And, and, and throughout church history, it's in the moments of the greatest persecution that, that Jesus does the best work. I mean, we've seen this in China. The church in China is exploding under that persecution. Jesus works best under pressure. And so we have to work best under pressure. Under pressure. There is hope for the believer. And he goes on to say in verse 6, or never, it goes on to say this, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He's saying this may kill you, but you're just, they're just killing the body. There is an eternity waiting for you. There is a victor's crown waiting for you. This is not a kingly crown. This word means victor's crown. Like you're going to come out and you're going to be crowned in victory because you stood the test and you walked uh, and you walk through the pain, even though if they killed your body, your soul will live on for eternity. James 1.12 says this, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God promised to those who love him. He's saying, don't give up when it gets hard. Keep in there. Keep in the fight. There's something better. There's a crown of life waiting for you. We need to be like the psalmist who wrote of his pain and distress in Psalm 118. He remembers his pain. He remembers his tribulation, and he praises God. He says, out of my tribulation or out of my distress, I called on the Lord, and the Lord answered me and set me free. So he's praising for God for getting him through that trial. And he goes on to say, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look and triumph on those who hate me. He's saying, I'm, my Lord has the, worst, has the last say. Not you, not, not, not an entity, not a people group, not sickness, not the enemy. Jesus has the last say in my life. And he's going to have the last say to these things. Because at the end of eternity, as we get to the, to the end of the book of Revelation, we're going to see that everything is restored. And those that fought against Jesus will be like these people. They're going to look at the people of God, look at them in their triumph, and they will be judged. 
And so we need to, to hold fast to what Jesus is saying here, to hold fast. Don't give up. Even if you die, don't give up. You have a crown of life that is waiting for you. Because then he goes on to say, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And I pray that as this church, that we open our ears to hear what he's saying to us. And this is what he's saying to us. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is the hope of the believer. This is our Christian faith. Like, it's not all about here. Like, we're blessed here. Like, Jesus does amazing things through us here. But that is not our hope. Our hope is in eternity. Our hope is in that, that we will be raised to life with Jesus Christ. And the hope of Smyrna was this, that you can kill my body, but my soul will live forever. This is the hope of the believer. We have to patiently endure because, like I said, Jesus... And this view of eternity is the counterpressure to our faith. It's the counterpressure that keeps that rock from crushing us. James Stockdale says this, and this is what he says about his experience in Vietnam. I never lost faith in the end of the story. Even though I was being persecuted, even though I was being beaten, even though they were doing all these horrible things to me. I never lost faith in the end of the story. He goes, I never doubted not only that I would get out, but also that I would prevail in the end. And that in turn, and that experience will be turned into a defining event in my life, which in retrospect, I would never, ever trade. The pressure we go through as believers is a refining process for God to be used through us. How many people have been martyred for the faith and their martyrdom actually spurred on a revival in that community? I think of James Elliott as one of those people. He went into this people group in Ecuador. They killed him with a spear. There's a movie about it called The End of the Spear. You should check it out. But his wife goes back in and those people are saved. And, and this, is, this is what Jesus does. Sometimes the blood of the martyrs is what waters the fields of revival. And we need to understand that, that we may die for our faith. There may be a day where we have to give an answer and be like Polycarp, renounce Jesus. I pray that when that day comes, that we don't give up. And I pray that today that may, maybe you're feeling the pressure of life and, man, you want to give up on faith and you want to give up on Jesus. You're like, this Jesus thing just ain't working for me. I pray that you keep the faith, that you realize that it's not about these momentary troubles. Life is going to have troubles. Jesus says this. He said, in this life, you will have trouble. It's a guarantee. But take heart because I have overcome the world. We have a better thing waiting for us. We can never lose faith in the end of the story. Amen. Never. We need to be, have the attitude like Obi-Wan Kenobi. <laughs> you know, he's fighting Darth Vader in Star Wars. And he, he threatens, Obi-Wan, I'm going to take you down. And he says this, strike me down and I will become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. Amen. And this is the believers, like this is, should be our attitude. Paul had this attitude. He's like, to be present in body is, to, is, is, like, is to be with you, but to be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. Saying, man, if I go to heaven, I gain. Like I gain everything. If, you, if I leave this body, I'm gaining something. I'm not losing anything. I'm not losing my life. I'm gaining real life. 
And so as a believer, we hold on to this and we hold tight to this. We have to hold on to the paradox that we have of immense pressure, immense persecution of things that happen to us. But we also need to remember that there is a better end and we never lose hope and we never lose faith in the end of the story. If I can get the altar team to come and the worship team to come. I want to close with this. This is the paradox of faith. We must face the brutal facts that crushing will come. The facts that pain will be real, that mockery and hatred toward believers will increase, and it may even be the norm as hard as it gets, but we must never lose faith in the end of the story. Believers today, maybe you've lost faith. There is something so much better than this world. And it allows me in this world to carry on in strength and to go on another day. Maybe some of you are having a hard time carrying on through your day and day. Look to Jesus. He will give you the strength to get out of bed and to glorify him in your whole life. Maybe today you have thoughts of suicide and you're ready to take your life. But there is so much something better. Jesus will walk through you through that pressure. He will walk with you through that pressure, through that pain. And I'm telling you, the pain you're dealing with is so temporary. It's so temporary compared to eternity. And Jesus will get you through it. If you just hold on to his hand, he will take you through it. I want to remind you with 2 Corinthians, I want to close this, 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 18. This sums up this whole letter to Smyrna. Paul is writing the church in Corinth. Paul knows very well what it means to be persecuted and hated for the faith. And so he writes with some authority here. And he says this, we now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars. Nothing special about us. Containing this great treasure, which is the gospel. This makes it clear that our great power is from God, not from ourselves. He goes, we are pressed by troubles on every side but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but not abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we're not destroyed. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Christ so that in life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. Yes, we live under constant danger of death because we serve Jesus so that the life of Jesus will be evident in our dying bodies. So we live in the face of death, but this has resulted in eternal life for you. But we continue to preach because we have the same kind of faith the psalmist had when he said, I believed in God, so I spoke. Believer, if you believe in Jesus, do not silence your words. If you believe in Jesus, you will speak. We know that God who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us with Jesus and present us to himself together with you. All this is for your benefit. As God's grace reaches more and more people, there will be a great thanksgiving and God will receive more and more glory saying, press on us. All we're going to do is produce more Christians. <laughs> Crush us. All we're going to do is be a fragrance that draws people to Jesus. He goes, this is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed day by day for our present troubles are small. Man, the stuff I worried about years ago, 
that I thought was going to take me out, it's nothing. Our troubles are small and won't last very long. They're numbered. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them all and will last forever. So here's what we do. We don't look at the troubles. We can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. It's the Stocksdale paradox. It's the paradox for the believer. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. Amen. Do you believe that? Would you stand with me? I'm going to give some final instructions. The altars are open. There's some people in the front, some people in the back. And we're going to do some baptisms in a moment, which is amazing. But today, maybe, maybe when I said tribulation and I talked about the boulder being placed on someone. And you're like, man, that's me. Like, I feel like someone has placed this heavy weight on my life and it's crushing me. It's stealing my breath. It's stealing my energy. It's stealing my focus. And, and what it's really doing is it's stealing your praise of Jesus. I pray that you allow the Lord to come and lift that weight off of you because that's not from him. Jesus said, my burden is light. My yoke is easy. I pray that you allow the Lord to take that off of you. So maybe you need to feel a little lighter today. Maybe you need to have some heaviness broken off of you. I pray that you come and speak to the altar team and that they pray with you. Maybe today you've, you want to give your life up and you, you don't see another day coming. You don't see anything good in the future and you're losing hope. Know that Jesus knows. He knows what it means to feel the pain that you feel. He knows what it looks like to be rejected, to be hated, to be mocked. He knows what it feels like to not have a place to belong. And I pray that as you come and let these altar team pray with you, that you find a place to belong, safe in the arms of Jesus in the kingdom of God. Maybe you need healing today. Maybe you're in this time of testing and 10 days would be awesome for you, but it's been a long time. I pray that as you come and you, and you get prayer, that not only are you healed, but that you have faith to continue on. I don't know what you need. The Lord does. And we're gonna let the Lord do what he wants to do with the rest of this time before we have these baptisms. So the worship team is gonna lead us in a song. The altars are open. I'm going to pray that you come and get prayed for. And then we're going to have an immense celebration as four people celebrate their death into life. And so, Father, I pray right now that everyone that needs prayer would have the courage to come up, God, that they would, they would answer the call and that they would get prayed for. For the worship team, for the altar team in the front, there's some in the back as well, that you would go and that you would allow the Lord to speak to you through somebody today. Because sometimes we just need Jesus with skin on. And I pray that they are that for you. And so, Father, I thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.